Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The inauguration of Gabriel Boric as Chile's president is another sign that Latin America is marching to the left, as a previous string of right-leaning leaders is voted out. We examine the varying agendas of a new so-called pink tide. And body-worn cameras have become a mainstay of rich world policing. But in Britain, to the consternation of privacy activists, they are increasingly being used against a new target, rude customers. First up, though. Russia's war on Ukraine has entered troubling new territory. Over the weekend, Russian airstrikes hit a military base in the country's west, less than 15 miles from the border with NATO member Poland. At least 35 people were killed and 134 injured. In another strident video address, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky said it was only a matter of time before Russian rockets fall on your territory, on NATO territory. But the threat is not just proximity to Poland. The country is a main artery for military equipment and supplies coming into Ukraine, shipments that Russia has explicitly said it sees as targets. Meanwhile, heavy bombardment continued on the capital, Kiev. And Russia continued its drive to encircle other Ukrainian cities. But the grimmest situation, the hardest hit, has been the already encircled Mariupol. Well, Mariupol, a city in the southeast of the country, has been besieged by Russian troops for about 12 days now. Christopher Lockwood is The Economist's Europe editor. Its inhabitants can't get out, supplies can't get in, and they're being relentlessly bombarded. And what is the situation on the ground as of now? It's terrible and getting worse. It's a city, a big city, about 400,000 people. They've been without food, water, electricity, heating. It's almost impossible for them now to communicate with outside. Their phones have long ago gone flat. I mean, the network is still working fine, but their, their phones aren't because there's no electricity. There's no water. They're able to get some of that by melting snow. That's what they have to do. They're making makeshift bonfires out of furniture and whatnot in order to keep warm. There's very little food. The, the shops have all been closed down or some were looted early on. There's, there's nothing in them anyway. It's been possible to get very small amounts of supplies in, but really is very small. And so, yes, hunger is a big issue and all the other amenities are gone. A humanitarian convoy is trying to get in to take people out and bring supplies in, but uh, the Russians aren't letting that happen. They, they tried yesterday, it failed. They're trying again today. Let's hope they succeed. 
And meanwhile, the bombardment of Mariupol hasn't stopped. No, by no means. The reports we have say that the bombardment continues and, and the city is steadily becoming unrecognisable. You can see these awful before and after satellite photographs where, where it looked like perfectly nice city blocks and they've just been turned into rubble. And you see this in other cities across Ukraine too. It's a combination of artillery shelling, rocket fire in some cases, and it's been absolutely devastating. The city council says that 2,000 civilians have been killed so far, but we've also seen estimates that it could be as high as 10,000, an appalling number. And people are not able to be buried. They're just dumped in mass graves. That's all that can be done. And of course, one of the most upsetting things that happened was when a maternity hospital was was hit by some form of rocket. It did extensive damage to the hospital. The Russians claimed, you know, without any justification at all, that Ukrainian special forces had taken over the hospital. In fact, there, there were lots of patients there. Many were injured. One or two have died. Very thankfully, not more. But that hospital has been devastated. But Mariupol is one of the places we keep hearing about ceasefires happening. What's happened with those? Well, you know, the Russians like to be seen to be playing according to the rules, I think. So they constantly announce humanitarian corridors saying that people will be able to leave and to come in. But then what happens is as soon as the time comes for the corridors to operate, the shelling starts up again. So it's impossible for people to go in and out along those corridors. Uh, And then they have declared other corridors, which they say are definitely safe. But those are corridors that only go eastwards into Russian-held territory. Obviously, no Ukrainians are going to want to do that, nor would they feel safe there. And we've had reports of people being deliberately shot at as they try to leave, head for the buses. So far, at any rate, they have been absolutely dummy offers, I'm afraid. In fact, a, a cruel way, perhaps, of using ceasefires as a tactic of war. But elsewhere, there has been some some limited honoring of uh, of humanitarian corridors and ceasefires that seem to have worked, again, in a limited way. What What is the point of keeping Mariupol so closed off? Well, I think that the Russians seem that they want to make Mariupol into an example. Firstly, it's a very strategically important city to them. If you look at a map, you'll see that where the Russians already occupied the eastern part of Ukraine, the the, the so-called Donbass region, they have wanted to connect that to Crimea, which is much further over to the west, via a land bridge. Now, that land bridge passes directly through Mariupol. And, of course, Mariupol is also an important port. Not so much of use to the Russians, because, you know, they have other ports uh, in, in Crimea, for example, but very much important to Ukrainians. And if you take that port away from them, then you've badly damaged their economy, of course. So Mariupol is, is a city that they really do want to have, I think. And so they are determined to get it by, by any means possible. Also, I think the example of Mariupol is a great threat to people in other Ukrainian cities of the sort of fate that could befall them if they go on fighting. And what does the situation in Mariupol now tell you about how Russia intends to conduct the war from here on out? Well, what we have to fear, I think, is that what's happening in Mariupol is just an example of what Putin intends to do to a number of other 
Ukrainian cities quite possibly including Kiev, the capital itself, though that's a much tougher proposition because it's so large. But we've seen that in Chernihiv, a city of similar size, actually slightly smaller and very close to Kiev, that's been isolated. People can't get in and out as before and is being relentlessly shelled. The same thing uh, is happening in Sumy, which is uh, you know further up towards the, the border with Russia on the northeastern part of the country. There's a city that's been completely surrounded, about 200,000 people completely trapped there with very few weapons to defend themselves and a relentless bombardment going on. And, you know, the real worry is that that is ultimately perhaps the fate of Kiev, that once the encirclement of the city is complete, and by the way, they're still quite some way off doing that, but once it is, they will try to simultaneously starve the city out and terrorise it with bombardment, artillery, rockets, bombs. And that will be a much harder thing for Putin to manage because the city is just so enormous, but it has the capacity for a very extended period of awful suffering. And uh, at least in places away from Kiev, though, is is the effect here largely psychological or is it strategic? Is it trying to take the country's cities by, by force and, and occupy them or simply to, to break the Ukrainian spirit and, and get the fighting to stop that way? I think it's trying to do both. There's no doubt that the examples that are being made of certain cities is mostly psychological. But over in the west of the country, I think something very different is going on there. We're seeing raids on targets out there which are deliberately designed to interdict the supply of weapons into Ukraine. They're coming from Poland. And what they want to do, the Russians, is is stop that supply because as long as the Ukrainians are being rearmed, they can go on taking out Russian tanks and aircraft. If that supply dries up, then Ukraine will be in a very difficult situation so, so when you put this picture together, what you see is that although Russia did seem to have got really quite bogged down in the north of the country, its advance on Kiev was, was slowed down by the, the blockading of this convoy that was coming in, that in the south of the country and in the east and now perhaps even in the west as well, that the war is still really very actively being prosecuted and, and not going the way that Ukraine needs. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Chile has a new president. Gabriel Boric was inaugurated on Friday. The left-wing former student activist took 55% of the vote in December's election, well ahead of his hard-right opponent, José Antonio Cast, who won 44%. It's just the latest win in a recent wave of leftist leaders taking office in Latin America. The region certainly has history when it comes to a resurgent left. 
a trend that a couple of decades ago put the likes of Hugo Chavez in power in Venezuela and the Kirchners in Argentina. That leftward lean led to big disparities in agendas and outcomes across the continent. The question now is where the latest leftist wave will take it. Gabriel Boric is just 36 years old, and he's said to be Chile's youngest president. He calls himself a libertarian socialist. Michael Reed writes Bayo, our column on Latin American affairs. He wants to create a kind of European-style universal welfare state in Chile, and he's very much a 21st century leftist with a green agenda of environmental regulation and a stress on feminism and gender and racial equality. His victory in the presidential election in December was widely seen as spearheading a new so-called pink tide of left-wing government in Latin America. And what are some other examples of, of the pink tide? Well, it began really in 2018 with the victory of Andres Manuel López Obrador in Mexico, the victory of the Peronists in Argentina the following year, election victories for the left in Peru and Honduras last year. If we look forward a bit, two left-wingers, Gustavo Petro in Colombia and Luis Inácio Lula da Silva in Brazil, are leading the opinion polls ahead of presidential elections in their countries. And then, of course, there is also the issue of the dictatorial left-wing presidents of Venezuela and Nicaragua and communist Cuba. And that's why some people argue that Latin America is poised to swing decisively to the left. And what do you make of that argument? It's more complicated than that. The dominant political trend for several years in Latin America has been anti-incumbency. In midterm elections last year in Argentina and Mexico, for example, the ruling left of center parties lost ground. The left has done well recently, mainly because voters have rejected unpopular right of center governments, which have had to grapple with economic stagnation and then the pandemic. And if you look at you know, region-wide opinion polls, they don't show that voters have really shifted to the left ideologically, but they do want better public services and think that their countries are governed for the benefit of a privileged few, which, other things being equal, can help the left. But historically, there, there have been big shifts to the left in Latin America. Yes, that's right. The current events are being compared with an earlier so-called pink tide in the region, which began with the election of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela in 1998. And it included the likes of Lula in Brazil and uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia and Nestor Kirchner and his wife, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina and then Rafael Correa in Ecuador. These leaders actually differed quite a lot in their political outlook. Jorge Castaneda, a former Mexican foreign minister and political scientist, wrote at that time that there were two lefts in the region. One, which he saw as represented by Lula and the Workers' Party in Brazil, the Broad Front in Uruguay, and the center-left Concertación coalition in Chile was, quote, modern, open-minded, reformist, and internationalist. The other, in Jorge Castaneda's terms, was, quote, nationalist, strident, and closed-minded, and came from Latin America's tradition of populism. And that left included Chavez, Evo Morales in Bolivia, the Kirchners in Argentina, and Correa in Ecuador, all of whom nationalized businesses and railed against American imperialism. Today, 
that earlier distinction of two lefts still holds to an extent. But if anything, there are even more variations among the region's left-wing leaders than in the past. What's the variation in this pink tide? Well, to take one example, there are differences in attitudes to democracy and human rights around the world and in the region. Gabriel Boric has criticized human rights abuses in Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, and has been very emphatic in denouncing Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. On the other hand, Gustavo Petro from Colombia was until recently a fan of Chavez, but now he criticizes Nicolás Maduro, Chavez's successor as Venezuela's president, especially for dependence on fossil fuels because um, Petro is an environmentalist. Mr. Maduro has complained of the emergence of a so-called cowardly left that attacks him. And then on Russia, there have been differences as well. The left-wing governments of Argentina, Mexico and Peru all voted for the resolution at the UN General Assembly condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Venezuela and Nicaragua have been allies and clients of uh, Russia and uh, have held back from condemning it. Mexico has tried to have its tortilla and eat it, as it were. As um, López Obrador has said, he wants to keep good relations with all countries and criticize the censorship of Russian state media by Western social networks. But his government did vote for that UN resolution condemning Russia. But what about on economic issues where the left in in Latin America has split most in the past? Well, the earlier wave of uh, leaders such as Chavez and, and Lula and Morales in Korea all benefited from a big commodity boom. And although commodity prices have risen again recently, and obviously the prices of oil and gas and some other commodities have spiked since the invasion of Ukraine, the bonanza may be smaller this time. And at the same time, there is a public demand for more social spending after the pandemic. And with interest rates rising, the increased public debt taken on because of the pandemic will be more expensive to service. And all that means that there's likely to be less statism and more pragmatism this time round. López Obrador in Mexico is a partial exception. He's poured money into Pemex, the state-owned oil firm, and he's trying to change the constitution to penalize private investors in, in energy. So it is something of a mixed picture. I mean, what's the overall view? What, what to make of this current so-called pink tide? What all these leaders have in common is that they see the state as a force for good in some way or another. Perhaps the biggest difference among them is between Gabriel Boric and the rest, and it's a generational difference. For him, the existential issues are climate change, gender inequality, and the recognition of indigenous communities. But for the older left, represented by Lula, López Amrador, Cristina Fernández, or Luis Arce in Bolivia, Attitudes are defined still more by issues of class and those of the Cold War, anti-imperialism, if you like. But despite these differences, there's a lot of fellow feeling among many of the, the new crop. They talk of you know, working together. And in that respect, I think the most significant of them could be Lula, simply because of his political experience and the weight of Brazil in the region. But for now, uh, all eyes in the region are on Gabriel Boric and Chile. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We've always suffered verbal and sadly physical abuse, but 
The pandemic obviously heightened that because there was flashpoints, triggers. Claire is a manager at a supermarket in the southeast of England. So I've been sworn out, spat at, and this is actually the worst thing. You get used to it, and that shouldn't happen. It can affect you mentally, obviously sadly physically as well, but I think the mental impacts can be far worse. Recently, Claire has been making use of a tool more commonly associated with the police. So you wear the body camera around your neck. Obviously, it's not recording constantly. You only record it if you need to, because it'll only record for so long anyway. You'll quite clearly say, I'm now going to start recording. You press record, and when it stops, you press stop. It's as simple as that. More and more retail stores in the UK are outfitting their workers with body cams. And this is being done as a way to protect store workers from rude and abusive customers. Margaret Kadifa is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. Abuse by customers towards shop workers was rising before the pandemic in Britain. But there were these health-related measures that stores had to implement and enforce during the pandemic. Think, you know, mask mandates and social distancing requirements. And that really escalated shop worker abuse. So according to a British shop workers union, 90% of workers were verbally abused in 2021, and 65% were even threatened with violence. And those numbers are up by about a third compared to their already quite high 2019 pre-pandemic levels. So these body cameras are starting to be seen as a way to protect retail workers from the you know, increasingly common abuse, unfortunately, that they're facing on the job. And so that's how they're seen. Is that how they work? Are they, in fact, preventing this abuse? They seem to be, yes. Tesco, which is Britain's largest supermarket chain, says the number of serious violent incidents has fallen by more than a fifth since it rolled out body cameras during the pandemic. And anecdotally, there are signs that these cameras are effective as well. So I spoke with one store manager who told me that just threatening to turn on one of the cameras was often enough to calm down an angry customer. And I guess the ethical debates about the use of this technology also apply here, right? So yes, privacy is a massive concern. You know, clearly not all consumers like the idea of being recorded, but advocates of these systems say that the recording is really only happening when a staff member is having an altercation with an irate customer and that the footage is deleted after 30 days, typically. On the other hand, there are critics who say that body cameras are much more invasive than, for example, CCTV, which is already all over Britain. The camera is closer and the image resolution is much higher. And unlike most CCTV, body cams record audio. And they don't only record the person to whom the camera is turned, right? I mean, I know from my own reporting, police who use the body cams are also monitored in effect. So are shop workers okay being monitored themselves when they use these cameras? So this is a real concern. You know, you could imagine that a shop worker could have a camera on and you could see what another staff member is doing in the background. So companies could be almost using these to monitor staff. Um, And another issue that came up, I, I talked to a lawyer who specializes in commercial law, and he said that there are, you know, unscrupulous firms that could dip into this footage for marketing purposes, you know, analyzing customer behavior to figure out how better to sell products. Or you could have an employee who might see a celebrity come into a shop and want to share that footage. And, you know, these two examples that this lawyer gave me, these are violations of privacy rights here in Britain. So some data experts say that abuse of shop workers is a real and very pressing problem. But increasing surveillance and allowing private firms to be responsible for that data is a pretty high price to pay to solve this problem. 
it is a high price, but is Britain willing to pay it? I mean, are these body cams just going to become a fixture in retail shops from now on? It looks like they will be. They're being rolled out. Shoppers are starting to get used to it. And for companies, they're really emphasizing employee well-being more and more since the pandemic. And if this becomes part of employee well-being, you know, this is going to become a fixture in shops. But these body camera systems are still very expensive. They're a few hundred pounds each, and then you have to pay for storage on top of that. So they probably won't be coming to smaller shops anytime soon, but it's very likely they'll become increasingly common at big nationwide chains. All right, Margaret, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.